0: Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin, and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note the following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. lillian clark a 15 year old girl had spent the evening working at a boarding house it was busy that night as canadian pacific railway workers had rented many of the rooms for the past few weeks she had been working the day shift but not tonight overall the night shift was nice work was slow but the pay was good especially when the town was booming thanks to its coal mine operating on turtle mountain on the edge of the canadian rockies The only difficult part of this new shift was she had never spent a night away from her family and tonight would be the first time. And as she worked, suddenly, the ground shook. Perhaps Lillian thought it was an earthquake or an explosion. But the next thing she knew, the building she was in began to groan and creak as a deafening roar enveloped everything around her. And then, almost as soon as it happened, it was over. What followed was a haunting silence Lillian didn't know it at the time, but the night shift had just saved her life. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. To understand what happened to Lillian on April 29, 1903, and how her mother and six siblings all died when Rubble covered their home, while her father, working up at the mine on the mountain, never returned... I need to take you back 300 million years. Turtle Mountain in the town of Frank in what is now Alberta, at that time was covered by a shallow ocean. Sea creatures lived and died there, leaving their calcium carbonate rich shells and skeletons on the ocean floor, and this created a thick layer of calcium carbonate that compressed into limestone. After the ocean receded, wetlands and rivers took over the land. New vegetation grew and died and that vegetation over the eons created layers of organic material that compressed into coal deposits. Classified as anticline of Paleozoic Rundle group carbonates, Turtle Mountain formed 70 to 80 million years ago, along with the rest of the Rocky Mountains. As it rose, those layers of coal and limestone created a mountain that was far from stable, as each layer had a weak grip on each other. At the summit of the mountain, fissures formed and water from the rain and snow began to infiltrate into the mountain. That water crept into the crevices for eons. Eventually, an inverted V cracked into the mountain's peak, creating an even better conduit for water. A natural funnel, if you will. As the days turned to months, which turned to years and centuries, the warm summers and cold winters expanded and contracted the cracks in the mountain creating internal pressure that was waiting to burst out. Down at its base, the Crow's Nest River slowly caused erosion of the mountain. And eventually, Turtle Mountain loomed over the Crow's Nest River, rising to a height of 2,210 meters or 7,250 feet. The indigenous people, specifically the Blackfoot, occupied this region for thousands of years and they gave Turtle Mountain a name that reflected its behavior. They called it the Mountain That Moved. They also never camped at the base of this mountain. In 1880, Louis Garnett arrived in the area, and he saw this mountain in the unique shape inspired its name. He felt he could see a turtle's face in the mountain, and its peak was the shell. So, he called it Turtle Mountain. More settlers arrived in the late 19th century, and none listened to the warnings of the indigenous people. That's because there was something in that mountain that superseded all other concerns. Coal. In 1901, Sam Gibo and Henry Frank, two American entrepreneurs, drilled right into Turtle Mountain. Within a few weeks, buildings were erected at the base near the route of the Canadian Pacific Railway. And on September 3, 1901, Frank was incorporated as a village, bearing the last name of Henry Frank. And that incorporation of the town was a big event. On September 10th, an all-day celebration was held. There were sporting competitions, tours of the mine, a banquet, and a dance. Premier Frederick Haltane even showed up, as did Federal Minister of the Interior, Clifford Sifton. With steady work and a thriving mine, Frank quickly grew, and by 1903, there were 600 people living there. Little did they know, they were beneath a ticking time bomb. During the winter of 1902-03, more snow than usual created a large snowpack atop Turtle Mountain. That winter was followed by an unusually warm spring that caused the snow to melt quickly. That melt, along with the rain, poured into the mountain fissures that had grown over the centuries due to the warming and cooling cycle of the region. And throughout April 1903, the miners kept hearing the rumblings of the mountain. The pressure of the shifting rock even began to crack and splinter the supporting timbers of the mine shaft. But still, the mining continued. On April 28, 1903, a sudden wave of cold air caused the water in the mountain to freeze. This trapped air and liquid within the mountain, and with that extra pressure of the expanding ice in its fissure, Turtle Mountain had reached its breaking point. Across the Crow's Nest River, Thomas DeLapp was working the night shift at the electric plant. He had arrived in Frank from Red Lodge, Montana the previous month with his wife. His wife was back at the hotel in town while the couple waited for a home to be built. Brothers Charles and Robert Chestnut had arrived in town that night. Originally, they were going to sleep in the log cabin beside the stable in town, but their purchase of the building had been delayed. They chose to get a room at the hotel, which a group of Welshmen had vacated earlier that day. They were excited for the next day when they would move in to their cabin. Stable boss Robert Watt had had finished his chores for the evening and he decided to go uptown to the Imperial Hotel. After spending a few hours there playing blackjack, he walked out into the cool evening to stretch his legs. Les Ferguson, a close friend, asked Robert if he was going to stay in the hotel that night. Robert thought about it and decided that for the night, he would sleep in his stable instead and save some money. At the foot of Turtle Mountain, James Graham was living with his wife and that night their friend Ned Morgan came by for a visit. After dinner and some drinks, James walked Ned out and looked over his land. In the distance, he saw the familiar sight of Andy Grisak's tent with a small plume of smoke rising from it. Up on the mountain, two of his sons were working in the mine that night. And outside of town, Andy Grisak sat in that tent making a meal. He'd been in Frank longer than most and lived in his tent throughout the year. He had no nearby neighbors around him, but he was known to be friendly in the community, and many children came by to listen to his stories about his adventures. He told them of the lost lemon mine full of gold, and the many hidden paths he had found through the mountains. The town of Frank slept peacefully that night, until 4.10am, when the mountain that moves, moved. An engineer on the CPR train, whose name is lost to history, was pulling the train out of the mine and slowly making his way away from the town of Frank. As he began to move the train, a deafening sound suddenly emerged from behind him. Working on instinct alone, the engineer pushed the train to full speed and got over the Crow's Nest River, and he didn't look back. Once he crossed the bridge, he turned around and saw the town of Frank was no longer there. At 4.10am on April 29, 1903, 30 million cubic meters of limestone rock, weighing 82 million tons, broke off of Turtle Mountain. The section of mountain that barreled down to Frank was 1 kilometer wide, 425 meters high, and 150 meters deep. Moving at 112 kilometers an hour down the mountain, it took 100 seconds for the slide to slam into Frank. The crash was so loud it was said that it could be heard 200 kilometers away in the town of Cochrane, Many people who survived and were close to the disaster said it sounded like cannons going off next to their head. And the reason the slide moved so fast was that an air cushion developed between the rock slide debris and the mountain from the compressed air. And it was at this point compressed air allowed the rock to travel faster on that cushion. There's a theory called acoustic fluidization which theorizes that a huge mass of moving material creates enough seismic energy that it reduces the friction between two materials, allowing it to move faster and farther. As the landslide fell down the mountain, it destroyed the entrance of the coal mine, two kilometers of railway, two ranches, and the eastern section of Frank. Thankfully, it was only the eastern section of Frank, which was more sparsely populated than the other areas of the community. At the mine, 20 men were on shift, with three standing outside the entrance. Those three, one of whom was Lillian Clark's father, were all killed in the slide, but the 17 inside the mine were still alive. The problem was they were trapped, and unbeknownst to them, things were much, much worse outside. The massive amount of rock that broke off the mountain had destroyed nearly every building on the east side of town. Many homes and businesses, the cemetery and seven cottages were destroyed. Most of those buildings were now under dozens of feet of rock and the dead numbered at least 100, but the exact number will never be known. There was a camp of transients on the east side of town, and it may have had as many as 50 people in it, but they weren't included in the final count of victims. Thomas de Lap, who was working in the ice shift at the electric plant, was killed instantly in the slide. His body was found several days later, a short distance from where he worked. The two brothers, Charles and Robert Chestnut, who had chosen to sleep in the hotel for the night rather than in their cabin, emerged from their temporary home to find their cabin, now long gone, and their lives saved by the simple decision of where to sleep. The same could not be said for stable boss Robert Wathat. He died in his stable when it was crushed by rocks from the slide. Robert's body was never found. Andy Grizzick, the old trapper who delighted children with his tales of adventure, he died in his tent that night. He was later found wrapped in his tent with an iron frying pan still in his hand. James Graham, who had bid farewell to his friend Ned Morgan after the dinner visit, died in the disaster. The log cabin house he lived in with his wife was buried under 100 feet of rock, killing him, his wife, and two hired men who lived in the bunkhouse next to their home. For rescuers, the scene was, at times, grisly. In one case, the leg and hip of a man was found lying 150 feet away from the rest of his body, Of all the dead, only 12 bodies were ever actually found after the disaster, at least initially. And amid the stories of the death and destruction, there were stories of survival for many. Lucy Ennis lived with her husband Sam and their four children, and when the slide hit, it rolled their home three times. Sam was able to dig himself free and began to dig Lucy out of the rubble. Lucy had been pinned by a beam and was in pain, but... When she saw mud blocking the mouth of her baby, Gladys, she freed the obstruction and saved her child's life. Sam was able to free his entire family, as well as his brother-in-law, James, from the rubble. When Sam freed James, he discovered his next-door neighbor, Mrs. Watkins, underneath him. Alive, but injured, she had been thrown into the house as the slide hit. As for Lucy, she had suffered a broken collarbone, but overall the entire family escaped without any major injuries. Nearby, Lester Johnson was laying in his bed when he felt a sudden wind hit his house. That wind, which was the air being pushed by the huge amount of rock falling down the mountain, lifted his house several feet off its foundation. The house suddenly began to crash and splinter, and the last thing he remembered was the screams of his parents, Charlie and Nancy. When he awoke, he could see light through cracks in front of him. As he looked around, he discovered two huge boulders had crashed together over top of him. They had not crushed him, but it saved his life by forming a roof over him and protecting him from further debris. He attempted to crawl out from the rocks, but the lathe had driven into his right side. And as he moved, it caught on a rock and the pain caused him to pass out. After he woke up again, he pulled the lathe out of his body with his bare hands and crawled out into the open. As he stood out in the cold spring air, he saw the destruction of his home and then noticed that all of his clothes had been torn away. Now naked and cold, he swam across the creek and found the Williams family. At their home, as he dressed himself, he noticed feathers in his side wound because the lathe had gone through his pillow and embedded the feathers into him. He was taken to the home of Dr. Malcolmson, and he passed out once more. When he awoke, he saw the feathers were gone, and his wound was stitched up. Sadly, his parents had died in the slide. An Italian man named Frank had been away from town to give evidence at a trial in Fort McLeod. When he returned, only rocks were found where his home once stood. There was also no sign of the fir tree that he had buried $700 under. An unnamed man who'd been drinking in town blamed the noise and shaking ground on his alcohol consumption. He went home to bed and woke up sober in the morning to discover that portions of Frank were now under 100 meters of rock. Catherine Bansimer was four years old when the slide hit. She woke up terrified as plaster from the walls and roof fell around her the entire house had been pushed off its foundation and along the ground. In 1953, 50 years after the disaster, she said, When a catastrophe like that happens, no matter how young you are, you remember it. Meanwhile, the 17 miners trapped inside the mine began to work to dig out the rocks that blocked the entrance, and with each passing moment, the air was becoming toxic as no fresh air was coming into the mine. But by the afternoon, they broke through to the surface and fresh air streamed into the mine. They weren't able to get out the entrance due to falling rock, so the miners had to cut a shaft through an outcropping of rock to protect them as they emerged. After 13 straight hours trapped in the mine, all 17 emerged alive. And that's when they saw that many of their homes were gone. One miner later learned his family was alive but injured at the hospital, while another received the news that he had lost his wife and all of his children. Over at the CPR work camp, not to be confused with the transient camp, 12 workers died in the slide, but it could have been much worse. Another 128 men were scheduled to arrive the day before, but their train failed to pick them up. That missed train saved their lives. And amid the destruction, Sid Kocek, a brakeman for the CPR, emerged as a hero. As soon as the slide happened and buried the track, he rushed towards an approaching train as rocks fell around him and dust impaired his visibility. He ran two kilometers to warn the Spokane Flyer that the track was gone, thereby saving an unknown number of passengers on that train. And for his heroics, he was given a commendation and $25 from the CPR, amounting to about $800 today. The Victoria Daily Times wrote, What happened is variously described from a volcanic eruption to a tremendous slide. So terrific were its effects that it is little wonder that the first version of the affair received this morning ascribed the cause of the trouble to the most extraordinary causes. The Calgary Herald reported that the disaster was caused by a mine explosion which left 60 people trapped in the mountain and destroyed several cottages. And as soon as news of the disaster reached the outside world, police officers and doctors began to arrive in Frank. They had to walk for several kilometers across rocks and boulders to access the town. And on May 1st, then Premier Frederick Haltain arrived to survey the damage. He immediately ordered the entire town evacuated until a survey of the mountain was completed. Residents could not return home for another nine days. But the Canadian Pacific Railway also got down to work clearing the track. The track was damaged so badly that it had to be completely rebuilt and the process took three weeks. As for the mine, it was back up and running on May 30th, one month after the slide. And while it was determined that mining activities on Turtle Mountain played a part in the slide and likely caused part of it, coal continued to be mined at Frank, peaking in production in 1910. Then mining slowed down until 1917, when the mine closed for good. Then in 1923 a construction crew was working on a road near the town, and as they dug through the rock they came upon the skeletons of seven people, and while there was no way to confirm who they were, the consensus was they were the family of Lillian Clark the girl who was working the night shift at the hotel 20 years earlier. The last survivor of the disaster was that little baby who was choking on mud. Gladys, that fateful morning. She passed away in 1995. As for the town, it grew to a peak of 1,178 people in 1910. But once the mine closed, the population slowly dwindled, and today it has 200 residents. The entire site is now a National Historic Site, and thousands of visitors each year visit the area. And for decades after the slide, town residents used paint markings and tape measures to monitor the movements of the mountain in the hopes of some sort of warning for another possible slide. Today, the mine is monitored by the Alberta Geological Survey on a regular basis to determine if another slide could happen. And geologists believe that there will be another slide, it's only a matter of time. Currently the mountain moves a few millimeters per year, and scientists believe the slide will come from the south peak and be one-sixth the size of the Frank slide. But thankfully, it's not expected for several centuries. But each year, 1,000 to 2,000 tons of rock continue to fall down various parts of the mountain. After the Frank Slide, legends sprang up about the disaster. One legend stated that the Union Bank of Canada, with $500,000 inside, was completely buried in the slide. This legend was prevalent enough that in 1924 when work crews were digging a new road, police guards stood by in case they found the buried money. In fact, the Union Bank was not hit by the slide and the legend only sprang up after 1911 when the bank was torn down. The other issue with the story is that a miner made $22 per week and $25,000 was enough to pay for 1,100 miners. So, there was no way the bank would have $500,000 in its vault. The most common legend from the slide is the tale of a young girl who survived in a miraculous way. The story says she was found either on rocks, on a bale of hay, under a roof, or in the arms of her dead mother. The legend actually came from the story of Marion Leach, who was thrown from her home and landed in a pile of hay when the slide hit her house. Sadly, her parents and four brothers died, but her sisters survived. She eventually moved to Cranbrook, where she passed away in 1977, and throughout her life she hated her association with the legend and being called Frankie Slide. After Turtle Mountain collapsed onto Frank and the miners escaped, one worker was left behind. Charlie the Horse was one of three horses that worked in the mine. All the miners who escaped assumed the horses had died, but Charlie the Horse had not. In fact, as the days turned into weeks down in Frank, Charlie continued to walk around the mine. He ate bark off timber supports for food and drank pools of water in the mine to quench his thirst. And as the miners began to work to reopen the mine, they were surprised to find Charlie the horse looking back at them. He had survived an entire month forgotten by the outside world. Now, Charlie's fate is a sad one, so brace yourselves. The miners, so excited to see him, wanted to help the horse and reward him for surviving so long in the mine. They gave him oats and brandy as a treat. But after eating only timber for a month, his body wasn't used to the food, which sadly led to the death of Charlie the Horse. Thank you for joining me this week on Canadian History X. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Maclean's, Alberta Geological Survey, Wikipedia, University of Calgary, Victoria Daily Times, and the Calgary Herald. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufour. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.